This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for early May 2019. It's our last episode of the season. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I also do a column every month in the St. Anthony Messenger published by Franciscan Media. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. And with your spirit, David. (laughs) Happy Easter, by the way. Happy Easter. The octave continues. We are in day two of one eight-long, day-long, eight-day-long day. day. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably the best way to describe what an octave is. People don't know. But Easter, like Christmas— is more than a week long. Yeah, it's a season. It's a whole season. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating every month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio and extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. And before we get started, we want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisefectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible. So please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, you've been traveling. You've been celebrating Easter in New Jersey with a bunch of... Carmelites? No. No. Oh, no. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Oh, how very dare you. Sorry. Let me let me try that again. Franciscan sisters. No, leave this in. <laughs> let the people know. No, it was it was poor Claire's, right? Yeah. Poor, poor Claire's. Claire's. Sorry. They're they're so poor Claire's sisters are what we call the second order. There are three Franciscan orders or kind of umbrellas. The first order are the friars, second order are the poor Claire's, third order is everybody else. Okay. So they get their name from uh, Claire of Assisi. She founded that religious community when she started following Francis of Assisi. It's a particularly enclosed or a cloistered way of life. So it's a contemplative community of nuns. And uh, yeah, so there are a number of these monasteries around the United States and, of course, around the world. 
And uh, this particular community of sisters I had known from the time I was a baby friar and joined uh, the Franciscans on the East Coast. They're in Chesterfield, New Jersey. They're just incredibly wonderful and holy women. And every year for the Triduum and for other feast days like the Feast of St. Clair of Assisi in August, they invite uh, a Franciscan friar to come and they have like a little... It's kind of like a quasi-hermitage, one might think. It's like a guest room that's outside of the cloister where, you know, a friar or, or a family member, if they're visiting the sisters, can stay and and stay through the uh, the high holy days of Holy Week. And so it was really a great privilege and honor to preside and to preach at Holy Thursday, Good Friday, the Easter Vigil, and Easter Sunday morning. And the local community really kind of comes out. So it's it's a small liturgy, which is nice, but there are about... 30 or 40, depending on the liturgy, 30 or 40 folks from the surrounding kind of New Jersey suburban neighborhood that come to worship with the sisters. So it's great. It was a great experience. That's wonderful. And uh, so you say it's a small liturgy. Help me understand. Small small in terms of uh, numbers of those who are there. So normally people think of, you know, Easter and Christmas as the big liturgies, meaning by which I mean big in terms of population. Attendance. Yeah, standing yeah. room only kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is is much more intimate, maybe okay. is a better way to put it. But you didn't chop down the liturgy itself. You no, yeah. no, 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 no. No, the Easter Vigil, you know, for there were probably about 50 people there. Uh-huh. And you no, know, it was a two-hour-long liturgy. That's because my homily was an hour and a half. <laughs> we just sped through everything. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, no, no, no. We Yeah, it's it's the full-on, full liturgy. So Holy Thursday, you know, we have... It, Holy Thursday is probably the simplest of, of all the three uh, liturgies, but we have the washing of the feet and then a Eucharistic procession at the end to a chapel of repose. And uh, I think the, the folks who come from, you know, the surrounding area to celebrate with the sisters during Triduum are very excited about both the procession of the Paschal candle after the fire outside on uh, the Easter Vigil and about the Eucharistic procession on Holy Thursday because the way that they process is through the cloister. So it's like the two times a year that lay people can actually kind of see you know, ooh, this is where the sister's dining room is, <laughs> this kind of stuff. So I, I imagine most people were praying, of course, but they were also probably looking around like, oh, this is what it looks like behind the scenes. You know, what's fascinating to me about that is that at the Easter service, that's the closest that we get in kind of liturgical activity and and visibility to what our Eastern Orthodox friends do. Like the, the procession, that's a very much a part of their Pascha service as well. So I, I remember going to uh, Blessed John the Wonder Worker down in Atlanta when I would go to Pascha services there, and we would process around the church multiple times. And, and the, the the liturgy of movement or movement within liturgy is fascinating to me, and I could ask you nerdy questions for the next hour about just that. But the one thing that I wanted to ask about is the other thing that I notice in the Triduum service is how much singing is involved. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of, that's one of the moments when, when the this, what is usually in my parish, a spoken liturgy, uh, erupts into song. And is that is that something that is called for by the church, or is that an aesthetic choice made by the celebrant? Some, In some cases, yes. In some cases, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Is, it an, is it a requirement of the church? In some cases, yes. So, for instance, you know, here's an example that's actually kind of perennial. It's not just for the Easter liturgies, and that's the gospel acclamation, whether during Lent, you know, praise and glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it's Alleluia in the ordinary or Easter time, 
that's sometimes you go to these masses, you know, a quiet mass or there's no, you know, liturgical musicians and you'll hear somebody go, Alleluia, Alleluia. And then they'll read the verse and they go, Alleluia. That is not cool. Okay. You're not supposed to do that. It is meant to be sung. And the same is true with the dismissal. So that's another example during the Easter season and during this octave, you know, uh, I, I'm tempted to do it, but I don't want to, this is too close with these earbuds and everybody's sure, ears sure. for me to ruin their, their brains and their, and their sense of, of the sacred. But just to, to recite what is sung, you know, go in the peace of Christ, alleluia. And then there's a really kind of flourished alleluia after that. That is intended to be sung. In sort time. of a multi-toned where you kind of go up and step down and yeah, all that. Yeah, exactly. Also the procession, the presentation of the cross before its veneration on Good Friday is meant to be sung. Um, you know, behold the wood of the cross, the procession of light at the first part of the Easter vigil liturgy with the paschal candle is meant to be raised and sung. And so for the, for the good people of God who were subjected to my singing, the sisters, they're too kind. I don't trust them because they, they said that everything sounded fine. I, I, the blood coming out of the, the congregants ears begged to differ, but you know, it's interesting. I just want to say one thing about the Easter liturgy, since you mentioned this and, and, and thinking of our Orthodox brothers and sisters as well. The, the real gift of, of a sacramental church and the kind of embodied experience of that sort of uh, liturgy, I was thinking one of the, the folks who was at the Triduum at all three of the liturgies was the mother of a young woman who's a friend of, of the sisters. And, and this woman is somebody who only speaks French. She's from a nation where, you know, and she came sort of later in life, an older uh, woman who only speaks French and my French is okay to read, but not very great conversationally. And so I, before Holy Thursday, I was introduced to her and she just, she was just very quiet and, and, and didn't really interact with many people. And I spoke a little French with her and then she lit, lit up and was, was very excited. But I was thinking the whole time the liturgy was all in English, all three days. And at one point I thought, I'm like, oh gosh, I hope this isn't, it certainly will be familiar to her. But then I was remembering, I was thinking also about there were a number of little children that came. This, this monastery is near a military base. And so there were some young military families that came and worshiped with the sisters. And I was thinking about how kind of, you know, fascinated these young kids were with what was going on. They really behaved very well. But I think they, they oftentimes I, I would kind of look out into the congregation and I would see they were very fascinated by everything that was going on. And then you have, and I mean, part of me is just thinking about the catechetical, mystagogical kind of experience of embodied liturgy, you know, whether it's the procession, whether it's the light, whether it's the song, whether it's the readings, because, you know, some of the stuff, the prayers too, particularly with the 2011 translation in English, the prayers are very cumbersome and not easy to follow even for grownups. And so what captures the imagination of kids and captures the imagination of those who may not speak the language? And, And I think the Triduum is one of those beautiful times in our church where, you don't have to know the language. You don't have to understand all the words, but the the space itself, the experience itself communicates what is most important. So I was just very, very aware of that this year. I, I have in the past, but more so this year. I, one last point on this. One of the sisters was telling me yesterday morning after we had Easter morning liturgy and, and we were sharing some breakfast together before I left. She said to me, she said, you know, I was looking across the the center of their chapel and when you came in on Good Friday and laid prostrate on the ground, these two kids, a little boy and a little girl, were just glued. And you could see the little girl kind of 
waved to her brother and like were pointing and they were just staring for five minutes in silence and were captivated by what was going on. And, and so that was really, really quite interesting to think about. So all of that, I mean, bringing back memories, I'm a, I'm a person who came to the church after, after having been in a, in a Protestant, uh, several different Protestant communities. And so my memory of, of sort of joining the church is wrapped up around that first time that I experienced the Triduum in that way as well. So just bring back memories of that. And one of the things that I love about Catholicism is the embodiedness of it, the fact that it involves not just the head, but the heart and the, and the movement of the body. So thank you for taking a moment to sort of talk about that. And, and before, I want to hear how, how things have been going with you and what, what's, what's new. But I just want to ask our listeners just by way of update. I'm not going to give too much information for the sake of privacy, but ask for your prayers uh, for one of my fellow friars, uh, a brother who uh, over the last, this was about a week ago as we're recording now, so just the week before Easter, was detained by ICE, by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. He was somebody on the process and, and actually had permanent residency status here in the U.S. And people may be reading reports about how under the Trump administration in particular, certain guarantees of people's safety and and presence in this country going through the process legally, doing nothing wrong is being revoked and people are being targeted. And here's an instance where one of our brothers has been in uh, detention, you know, first in a prison because the the government rents out spaces in county jails. So they're in there with people who've committed crimes or are accused of such and then was moved to a more permanent or at least a longer-term immigration detention center where he is now. And, and he's doing okay, and we have the ability to communicate with him, and we have a number of resources as religious and, and with the archdiocese and so forth. But it's, it's a deeply it's, – it's been a very somber sort of Easter and Holy Week for us too, particularly as we think about – you know, what leads into Good Friday and that experience of suffering. Um, and it's been a, a real kind of, you know, reinforcement of what we already know about what so many women and men have gone through. And we've talked about on this on this program, it's when, when this brother was detained and for the better part of a day or so, we didn't know where he was. We didn't know what was what what was going on. There was no communication apart from one phone call, um, and we were trying to get an, attorneys and others to to his assistance. You know, we didn't know what state he was in. We didn't know what the government was doing or what he was facing, and it just that was just the tiniest little sliver or fraction of what I I cannot even imagine mothers and fathers experience when separated from their children at the border and, and weeks and months go without knowing where their children are. And this is somebody who's a grown man, who's an adult, who's a religious, who's a, who speaks the language and, and has more resources than you know most people do. So anyways, I just ask uh, for our listeners' prayers, um, for our brother, and for all of those who are facing you know these kinds of really uh, treacherous uh, dehumanizing is the word I would use, dehumanizing experiences. So I thank you. Definitely keep that in prayer. And, and on the subject of prayer, also just want to say we've interacted with several listeners over the course of this season, both face-to-face and over electronic media. And we've been talking about the fact that we're praying for you and that's continuing. And just know that we're praying for all of our listeners, but especially for some of the intentions that have been made known to us but also praying for those in Sri Lanka. We're recording this right after the bombing in Sri Lanka. Those that are helping with the recovery of Notre Dame, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Also, uh, she's she's not Catholic, but Rachel Held Evans has been yes, in the hospital as well. And very important writer for people who are 
I guess I would say on a spiritual journey. And uh, she's taken ill, and so we're in prayer for her. I lit a candle for her health at the Triduum. And uh, just if you if you can be lifting up prayers about that as well. So, yes, we, we continue to keep everybody in prayer. David, how have you been? So it's been a very busy few weeks. So if you have never been to Chicago— but get here soon. Get here soon. <laughs> it's great. I, I've said this before, but let me say it again. There's there's a song by the band Chicago, and the song I, I won't sing it again to save the ears of our listeners. <laughs> but the the words of the song say Saturday in the park, and every day is the Fourth of July. And what happens in Chicago is you reach a point in either mid April or early May where like a switch flips. And things get bright and cheery and the clouds disappear from the sky and it's blue and the the temperature for like a space of a couple weeks is perfect. We're in that space right now. What happens when you reach that point in Chicago is that also everybody begins having every activity under the sun inside and outside. And so the last week and a half has been crazy with programming, and it's not going to stop for my wife and I for about three more weeks. That will include, among other things, the First Communion of my son. Oh, yeah. Uh, my daughter went through First Communion last year, and my son—so Rumi, the the Persian poet, writes a, a wonderful poem about a herd of goats going down to the watering hole, and the, the poet is worried about the one that sort of is— kind of walking behind what uh, Rumi calls the lame and dreamy goat. So my son is the lame and dreamy goat. He he does not focus and lock in on things very much. He's in his own world and he and he loves the things that he loves and he's he's indifferent totally to the things that don't penetrate that sphere of interest. I have been pleased and blessed that he has taken an interest in first communion in a way that we had not expected him to. It's actually very surprising, but he he actually is excited about it. He's getting involved in it, and it, is, it has increased his participation in liturgical activity generally. And so the Triduum was especially fun because he was attentive, and he was he was engaged in a way that I have not seen him before. Not a patch on my son. He, he's doing fine. He's at his own pace, but he's the lame and dreamy goat, and he's just been kind of doing things on his own, but now he's kind of joined the pack for a little bit. That's really cool. Yeah. Whenever I interact with him, he really is kind of this creative, artistic spirit, isn't he? <laughs> he he's, is. He's really quite a guy. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's both enjoyable and at times incredibly infuriating as a parent because you, I, just, <laughs> I just need you to come be here now, and, and it's not always the case. But, you know, we, we, love, we love him for that and uh, in the same way that we love our daughter for her intensity. And so— I was going to say, yeah. they, they really complement each other because that's been my experience. Yeah. She's, she's pretty, uh, pretty on the ball, as they say. Yeah, and, and very—I mean— yeah, we we say that she does everything to eleven, and Beckett does everything to bananas, <laughs> which is just the way. But that's all to say, you know, that that's that will involve family being here, and that will involve kind of more programmed activity in and around a time when also our parish and our school and several of the organizations that I belong to they all are ramping up. And I'm trying to finish a semester and teaching, and I'm trying to transition into a Maymester, and I'm trying to finish a book and start another, and I'm trying. There's just a lot of things happening. A lot of juggling going on. Yeah, but uh, but in and all in and around all that, I mean, I've got I've got a lot of good support, and I'm basically happy. <laughs> Can't ask for anything more than that. Yeah, and yeah. I'm I really love Easter. It's it's probably I mean cliche to say, but it's it's probably my favorite holiday in the Christian season, and I I love. 
I love the music, especially. There is a, the Pavel Cheshnikov uh, Salvation is Created. I don't know if you know that piece. It's sung every year at our at the parish here that we attend, and it's just a beautiful, like, low bass Russian and high kind of vaulting soprano, just a gorgeous piece. It gets quoted a lot of times in movie themes and soundtracks. So if I were to play it for you, or if you look it up, it's uh, Pavel Cheshnikov Salvation is Created. If you if you Google it, uh, you will recognize probably the melody of it. But it's uh, they did an especially good version of it at the Easter Sunday service, and it just it brought tears. And I I'm very very happy when I get a chance to engage in those moments and not be distracted from them. That's awesome. Yeah. So on our show today, we're going to be talking about three things. We will be talking about the partial destruction of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, Notre Dame in Paris. Uh, we'll be talking about the recent Gary Wills fracas or the, the recent fracas that uh, arose around Gary Wills kind of dissing Thomas Merton. And we're going to be talking about the Mueller report. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt. And every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. We have had a series of highs and lows over the last few weeks, and there will be no surprise to many of our listeners. Uh, one rather shocking uh, event uh, recently was the fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. There has been such an interesting, my choice of term here, interesting outpouring of grief and support and financial contributions or pledges and uh, consternation about that and everything else. Here to talk about this is our own David Dalt. Well, there's a lot to say. Let me start personally, and then we'll kind of work out to the more general. So in the early 2000s, I visited Paris for a brief period of time, but one of the things that I made sure to see were some of the religious sites in Paris, among them the chapel at Saint-Chapelle, which is gorgeous and beautiful, but also Notre Dame. And I remember at the time writing in my journal that it was like I had visited Catholic Disneyland. I wasn't Catholic at the time, and showing up there, I had to pay a fee to get in, and I didn't really see it as a worship space. I saw it instead as kind of a gawking space. You go there, you check it off the list. Now, I think that probably my experience may have been different had I gone there closer to my experience of being Catholic. But one of the things that is troubling to me about the destruction and the pledge to rebuild is I'm not sure what is going to be carried forward in the rebuilding. I mean, among other things, Walt Disney World or the Disney Corporation pledged a number of millions of dollars to rebuild it. And at the time, I was like, okay, so now Disneyland is actually going to be rebuilding Catholic Disneyland. I didn't have a positive spiritual experience at at Notre Dame. That's not a that's not a dig at Notre Dame. It's more probably just the sign of the times and the sign of kind of where I was. But I'm I'm interested in kind of what you think is going to be carried forward. Among other things, the I've seen on social media recently, the desire to rebuild it with a glass ceiling and all these kinds of uh, th yeah, things that kind yeah. of take it into this kind of modern or postmodern architectural space. I'm not sure that that's the right move. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if, if you were thinking about what's going to be carried forward or what should be preserved or replaced, what would you say would be on that list? Well, I, I, so my personal 
opinion is that with art restorers and, and architects who specialize in this sort of thing, that what should be done is, is probably as close to representative of what was there to begin with, with one major caveat, which is, and it's not to blame the victim, but there is a little bit of, you know, there were no updating, no modern inclusions of firewalls or sprinklers. And the New York Times did a really great kind of interactive piece on their website that was 3D and you could kind of see you know, what happened, how the fire broke out from this construction, you know, mishap and and what would have it looked like if basic sort of things that most European cathedrals that are as old or older than Notre Dame had included. And so, so there were some basic precautions that, you know, the preservation folks or the, the people responsible for that, whether it's the Archdiocese of Paris, which probably has some say of the, in this, but it's also a national landmark. And so the government has some responsibility in this too. So who you know, a number of people seem to have dropped the ball. And I, and I think it's worth stating that from the outset, that this may not have been entirely preventable, but but there was, it didn't have to be as destructive as it was. I do not like, my first, when I saw this um, kind of design competition that you're referring to here and people floating these different ideas, the first thing I thought of was Soldier Field here in Chicago and the monstrosity that is what some people vary, you know, have various terms for this, whether it's the toilet bowl, whether it's the UFO. Those who are familiar, you can Google it if you've, again, not been here. This is – Dave and I, for some reason, are turning this episode into a <laughs> come to visit Chicago. Come see Chicago. <laughs> you know, tourist ad. But what, what he's talking about is basically if you're driving down Lakeshore Drive, which is the major north-south artery that, that literally rims the, the lake, um, as you're driving north, you pass what looks like the Roman Coliseum – that has been digested by from, huge, from the waist down a huge yeah. un- unidentified flying object. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really weird. Yeah, you have this this classical kind of Romanesque construction, which which is I mean it's a it's an old old stadium. It was you know and of course what happens is there weren't enough seats or they wanted to make more money include more seats so they built this glass kind of modernist sort of thing on the top. And it looks terrible. I mean, I don't really have a feel, you know, much much of an opinion about football in general, but I don't like the look of it. Um, it looks ridiculous. But anyway, so that's what I saw when I saw some of these proposals. I think it would be a, an incredible mistake. And, and I can't imagine that it, anyone would actually take it seriously. Um, so I think they need to, to try to restore what was there, I mean, as much as possible. To your point, I think you raise an interesting point too. I, I was both – first of all, I was a little surprised at my own sort of emotive response to seeing the fire. I think part of it is seeing something so historic. And I've been I've been to Notre Dame as well. I, I was there actually most recently three years ago. And so I, like you, didn't have a particularly strong religious experience. And at that, tw- at that point, I was a, <laughs> a friar and a theologian and a Catholic priest. And even I, you know, felt like, all right – Part of it is, I think, the history of France, the modern history of France. And there's a certain irony, of course, that a number of people commented on, myself included, that here is the country since the French Revolution that has been incredibly hostile to any public displays of religion, Catholicism specifically in this case. But let us not forget, this is the country that has the, the so-called burqa ban and all these other very anti-public displays of religion. And the term for that is laicite? That's exactly right. Okay, and, yeah. and, and basically that's kind of like, is that from the same root as laity or is it? That's my understanding. Yeah. And, and it's... Yeah, what, what that term refers to is uh, the policy, the kind of state policy of the French government, certainly post 
revolution, but but even in a more contemporary setting, that affects things like public displays of religious garb. It has to do with uh, religious leaders like priests serving in, in public office and that kind of thing. Well, and that, that opens up to a more general question because a lot of commentators have taken the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral as a symbol for something larger happening in Europe, the sort of de-Catholicization of Europe, the de-religiousization of Europe, the notion that somehow we've we've eviscerated or evacuated the the spiritual content of these religious points and have instead sort of given it a kind of tourist feel. And, and well, so, yeah, 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 I mean, I have, I'll be honest with you, I've seen some of that in my initial, when I hear that kind of thing, I get really upset because it reminds me of the kind of absolute, I mean, it's just one step away from the kind of horrific remarks that people make, like that Florida pastor who said that Hurricane Katrina was in response to same-sex uh, civil unions being approved in the United States, that it was God's wrath upon, you know, it makes, it, 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 no, the fire happened because some, you know, because people who had the responsibility of oversight in and preservation of this uh, 800-year-old cathedral did not keep it up to task in that when they finally started beginning the construction there was a construction accident. It's not God's wrath, it's not a symbol of anything more than that. However, I think it's interesting that People look to this and use, you know, people use all sorts of tragedies and public spectacles to their own advantage. And this may just be one of those cases. I have a lot of mixed feelings about the kind of Western European angst around the lack of public Christianity. Mm-hmm. And part of that is is tied to my own scholarly work with and in response to the radical orthodoxy movement out of uh, Britain, for instance, and some of the kind of political commitments that a lot of those thinkers have espoused, particularly a red Toryism in, in Great Britain, that is actually anticipates in some ways sort of the Brexit anxiety. Um, I also have a real problem with the fact that, you know, you used this kind of interchangeably a moment ago, and I think a lot of these folks would too, kind of a, a de-Christianizing and a de-religiousizing, to coin a term, there isn't a lack of religion necessarily in Western Europe. It's it's just not the religion that a few people want it to be. Well, and this this raises, I think, the real interesting question for me about what the destruction and the rebuilding entails in a larger sense, because I do think of it in some ways symbolically. I, I wonder what it is that we're going to choose to carry forward. Because we're at a point right now where we have access to history and we have the capacity to reframe and reshape with new materials a history moving forward. That's true not just of the building. That's true of our theology. That's, I mean, we, we're literally living through the burning and reconstructing of a lot of kind of cathedrals of the mind, if you will. Yeah, but, that's, but is there ever an era where we aren't? maybe not, but we're living through this one. <laughs> and so, and so True. The, the, the story that gets told is that we're handed on these precious vessels and these precious vessels in one way or another have kind of God's thumbprint on them through the Holy Spirit or through the apostolic succession yeah. or whatever. But now suddenly we're at a point of, of where we feel the choice in a way that we don't always narrate the choice before. So it, it may, may have always been thus. But right now, I think we're, I'm certainly feeling it maybe differently. But maybe that's just my own lack of historical foresight. 
No, I, I mean, I think you're, you're giving voice to something that a lot of people are experiencing. So I, I'm not trying to dismiss that. I think we might have a different perspective on this for sure. I tend to be – so just a couple – I'm just thinking about this. I'm going to extrovert out loud a little bit here for our listeners and for me and you. I have a very mixed feeling, if I'm being very frank about it, when it comes to the hybridity of some of these places that are both places of, of sacred worship and tourist sites – Perhaps there's no worse place than St. Patrick's Cathedral in Midtown Manhattan. I mean, you go to St. Patrick's and it's it, it's the cathedral seat of the Archdiocese of New York and there are daily masses going on and there's kind of stuff. I mean, I've seen – and then there are people walking around taking pictures and there's there's chatting. I mean, think about this in my own, you know, in Assisi where we have the Basilica of St. Francis and the Basilica of St. Clair and you have their tombs and – and, you know, you have people who are trying to, you know, tell them to be quiet or it's true, the Sistine Chapel, et cetera, et cetera. On the one hand, I don't think you should have to be a Catholic Christian to go to these places. I don't think you have to go to mass to go to these places. So I, I don't know. I just have very mixed feelings because I think there are legitimate concerns about the Disney-fying that you were describing earlier. And yet I also – I don't know. I don't really know what I think except that I'm, I, I have – I don't know. Well, I'm definitely, in the next segment, when we talk about Merton, I'm going to bring back some of these questions because I think what comes up with the the Merton controversy that Wills is trying to stir up speaks to some of these same kind of questions now, not on an architectural level, but on a human level. That being said, let's be honest, you and I get criticized sometimes for, I guess, a mischaracterization of our positions, that we are somehow theological renegades who want to overthrow tradition and all of that. So, I think it may be interesting to some listeners, maybe to some hostile listeners, that we we care very much about tradition and what gets handed on. We care very much about the questions of how the church is presenting itself to the wider secular world. Yeah, no doubt. I, I guess my concern, you know, to, to kind of tie it back to the cathedral, is that the faith is more than these buildings, and that for 1,200 years before the cathedral of Notre Dame was being constructed in the 13th century— there was the faith present in Gaul and all its many iterations, and there will be afterwards. And it may not look the same as the way some people wish. I think part of the problem is when you see something like the Cathedral of Notre Dame, it evokes a, a high Middle Age period, a Gothic architectural period, and maybe this is what you're getting at, and it, and it brings back warm fuzzies for people who think that a, a kind of naive Thomism or something is the answer to all of our contemporary problems. And I think that's where I take issue. I have no problem, you know, I saw something, some commentator on the internet going on about, you know, this is a, a real tragedy because what should really burn is the cathedral in Los Angeles. And, and this person was going on about this. I think that the cathedral in Los Angeles is one of the most beautiful worship spaces on this planet. And it's relatively contemporary. It's, it's less than 20 years old. And so, you know, on the one hand, there is de gustibus nonis disputatum, right? In taste, there is no dispute. And, and that people's aesthetic preferences are just that. And I guess I get upset when people start tying more to it. And I'm not saying you're doing that. But, but I think you're right that there are a lot of people. You're, you're giving voice to the fact that a lot of people are taking this external physical place as symbolic of something else. And, and that leap is where I don't want to go. I think that's really problematic. Let me ask about this in a slightly different way. So there was a priest, Jean-Marc Fournier, 
And he ran into the burning building to save a relic. Oh, yeah. uh, Don't the, get me started on this. And, and also to save the blessed host. Mm-hmm. And so I am going to get you started on this. I so, know. <laughs> so that was what, a rhetorical device. So what, it, so what is your – so I, I found that to be moving in the way – in the same way that when I watch the uh, Romero biopic – I am thrilled at the moment that he turns the motorcade around and goes back to protect the blessed host from those that have occupied the church. Two very different situations. Okay, explain to me Two the difference. Two incredibly different okay, situations. help me understand. Okay, the first is, well, in reverse order, the Romero scene is the soldiers are desecrating the blessed sacrament by shooting a machine gun into the tabernacle and exploding the ciborium so that the hosts fly everywhere. Okay. That's, that's different. And for, for those that may be non-Catholics listening, so there, when, when the host has been consecrated, we Catholics believe that it is the body of Christ perpetually. It's the sacramental presence of Christ. The yes. sacram- yeah, yes. and, 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 so, and so it is put into a place called the tabernacle, which sits on the altar or above the altar, depending. And it's a, it's a place of reverence. There's a candle lit next right, to it and all of that. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's sufficient. So it's one thing to have an act of, of desecration. It's another thing when there is a, a natural disaster that's an unintended threat. So the symbolism of Romero going back is to say something about the faith. The problem with this situation with the fire chaplain is that God does not need to be saved from fire. And to risk one's life, you know, to go in and, and retrieve the Blessed Sacrament, I think is foolhardy and does not actually take into consideration one's own safety and the safety of others who, if he were to have been entrapped or something, would risk the lives of his fellow firefighters and others to rescue him. It was brash and it was stupid. God does not need to be saved from fire. Point one. Point two, crown of thorns. It's, yeah, moving on. (laughs) It's one of probably 3,700 so-called authentic crowns of thorns. And so, again, I guess my point is this, is that the the emphasis that's been placed around the ostensibly heroic act of saving, quote-unquote saving, the ostensible crown of thorns in a reliquary and the blessed sacrament from the tabernacle is, I think, a reduction of the faith and of sacramental theology to a kind of magic pseudo-realism where these items themselves – need to be protected because they do something for us. God's presence to us in the, in the Eucharist, God's presence to us in the word, God's presence to, it would be, well, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, God does not need our saving. And that's, that's the theological errancy at the heart of this thing. And to risk that kind of behavior is, is I think, I, I am very, very against the kind of valorization of this. I am fascinated by this. And let me just say, as a layperson. I had a completely different take and that I completely hear what you're saying that theologically and liturgically there's an impropriety in the preferencing of these objects over a human life that also bears the image of God. Um, And I'm not equating that. I didn't quite say that. My point is that it's 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 analogous it's uh, it may not seem it intuitively mm-hmm. it might seem counterintuitive but it's analogous to to run into a burning building to retrieve the blessed sacrament is very different than when somebody is trying to steal it or shoot a machine gun at it or yes. something like that and romero is making a bigger statement there mm-hmm. the, the the fire thing and it's not just the safety of the firefighter or in this case the fire chaplain it's it's about what do you think that is mm-hmm. 
if you believe it's the sacramental presence of Christ, God can take care of God's self. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and another thing that somebody pointed out, which this is just a scientific aside, is that the temperature at which the gold tabernacle would melt was never was nowhere near that in the cathedral when the roof was burning. Yeah. So, so the whole thing is just seven degrees of absurd to me. Okay. Okay. And, and so this might be a good place to, to stop this conversation because I want to continue this conversation in the next segment when we talk about Merton. So, but for right now, I just want to thank you because we're getting into some stuff that I find fascinating. So stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Dan Haran. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend, Father Dan Haran. And every couple of weeks, we get together and talk about various topics informed through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. We've just been talking about the destruction of the cathedral at Notre Dame, and now we're going to be shifting and talking about an area of Dan's expertise, and that is Thomas Merton, the monk who lived in the middle of the 20th century at the Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky. And one of the things that makes Merton, Merton is perennially important to talk about and popular for a number of reasons, but we're talking about him right now because just recently on April 22nd, that's when, when I have it in front of me, Harper's published a review written by Gary Wills of a book about Thomas Merton called On Thomas Merton by Mary Gordon. And the title of his review is Shallow Calls to Shallow. And it's a if I may, it's kind of a, it's a dismissal and kind of an, an excoriation of the myth of Merton. And I have a lot that I want to, to sort of reflect on this and think about this. But first of all, I want to get your raw take on this review from Gary Wills. What was, I mean, you've taken a look at it. What, as a person who's worked on Thomas Merton, what was your first gloss? Okay, so my, my initial, my, my so-called hot take, I tweeted out and I said simply this, Gary Wills, who is certainly a man smarter than this, has used his ostensible review of Mary Gordon's mediocre book as an opportunity to cast scathing and obstantiated judgment on and dismissal of Thomas Merton. It's a sad illustration of misunderstanding and overreach. Okay, so there's a lot in that, in just in those characters, you've managed to get a lot. So first of all, you think that Mary Gordon's book is a lightweight book. Yeah, I should, by way of full disclosure, I've been asked by an academic journal to review the book, so I've read it, and my re- review is forthcoming. And, you know, I, I use that adjective advisedly. I, I think it's a mediocre book. It's not a bad book. It's not a great book. It's it's a It's a really... You know, you know, by way of spoiler alert, you know, one of the questions I raise about it is why is this book necessary? And I think it, for our purposes, it's not worth kind of getting into it because Gary Wills basically doesn't either. That's why I say his ostensible review, he was assigned by Harper's Magazine to write a review of Mary Gordon, who's a professor of creative writing in New York and, and a novelist. She wrote this book on Thomas Merton, and the, and the premise is that she was going to write about Merton as a writer to a writer kind of thing. Hence, I think the play on that premise is where we get Wills's title, Shallow to Shallow. So her, her whole idea is this, I'm going to write about Merton as a writer to a writer. And it's really just a series of long block quotes from Merton's own writing that she intersperses with her own reflections, which is perfectly fine. But she's not a Merton scholar. Uh, you know, she's interested in Merton as a Catholic, you know, novelist. 
But it's it's not a great book. It's just not a great book. It's not a bad book. And Wills used this occasion to review it to just kind of go hog wild to with. take pot shots and almost the yeah. verge on character assassination. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. So so there was a Robert Hudson wrote a book recently called The Monk's Record Player, which tries to look in depth. And he's a person with some chops in terms of Merton scholarship. He tries to look in depth at what is available about ostensibly an affair or some kind of temptation towards affair that happened late in Merton's life with a person who is called in the literature M. M yeah. yeah. Which we'll respect because yeah. I, I find it very offensive when people try, try and, and dig. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, but, but Wills takes what I think is handled very well in Hudson's book with some, with, you know, here's what we can say reasonably given the evidence that we have. And Wills just basically throws down, no, he went full force into the affair and on, and just the allegations of that already. It's an attempt to try and do a checkmate against the, the reputation of Merton without Merton there to defend himself. First of all, is that a fair characterization in my reading of what Wills is doing? Uh, yeah, uh, I'll say I have a lot to say about this. So first of all, Hudson, for our listeners, is not writing about this relationship in Merton's life. His primary purpose in that book is to talk about the influence of kind of popular music at the time, and especially the music of Nobel laureate Bob Dylan on Merton's own sort of understanding of popular culture and reflection. So it's it's a book about that in which Hudson makes in passing some references to uh, to this relationship that Merton had. And I'll I'll say more about that in a minute, what we actually know. The other thing is there have been lots of people who are very, very captivated by this relationship and sensationalize it. It was a terrible book uh, that was published about 10 years ago where the author of this book, who had no previous Merton experience, was a biographer and, and had written a number of books like on baseball and some random things, had heard about this and became captivated by it and was pitching this book that came out and it basically flopped because... It was so poorly researched. It was poorly substantiated. It, it sought the kind of scandalous value that, oh, people would be intrigued by this. Uh, what is it that we're actually talking about? And, and Wills falls into this camp of, of somebody like – the guy's name was Mark Shaw who wrote this terrible book. He, he called his, – his title of the book was actually deeply offensive in my opinion as well. I'll talk about character assassination. It was something to the effect of beneath the mask of holiness – Deeply offensive. Anyway, Wills falls into that camp, and I would say it's a camp of misunderstanding and a camp of overreach. What we know, in 1966, Thomas Merton, who had chronic back issues, had some major back surgery. This is back surgery in the mid-60s, so he was in the hospital for many months. At that point, there was a young nurse who he struck up a friendship with, a mutual friendship. They got to be very close, and admittedly, they fell in love with each other. Now, that happens all the time. It happens to men and women who are single. It happens to men and women who are married. It happens to men and women in religious life because men and women in religious life are also human beings. And if they can't fall in love, if that was not possible, they would be cold, cruel, horrible, religious, and you wouldn't want them to be ministering pastorally to anybody. And Sadly, we have examples of those kinds of people in the church too. I was going to say that, but I, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all right. We'll leave it there. there. Yeah. Um, we'll let our listeners, you know, compile their own list of who they might imagine. In any event, what we know is that there were several times where they met up after Merton was uh, discharged. They had some mutual friends who connected them. They wrote letters to one another. 
Merton kept a journal which has been published. It's in the, uh, I think it's the sixth, the sixth volume of the seven published volumes of Merton's journals. And the editor of that volume is Dr. Christine Boshin, who's a, uh, one of the leading living Merton scholars. And, and her introduction to that volume is probably the best scholarship on this relationship. And so if you want to learn more about what actually happened from Merton's side of the view, perspective or Merton's side, I would encourage that and to read Dr. Boshin's introduction. We don't have M's side of the story because M was about 20 years younger than Merton. And, you know, after the summer of 1966, Merton, who was over the summer trying to decide whether God was calling him to leave the monastery, whether he was meant to be, you know, in his, in his mid-50s or early 50s, to maybe be called out of religious life into married life. In the end, through prayer and spiritual direction and conversation, including with his abbot, decided that, no, actually he was going to stay in religious life. And so they realized that that friendship, the relationship would have to end. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's evident from Merton's writings and from what we know from a scholarly and substantiated perspective that Merton was true, in fact, to his, his religious call. But it's also true that he was in love and had an experience with this woman, um, an experience of love, an experience of acceptance that he had not up to that point had in his life. All right, so that's what we know. There's also, I should recommend, a book by the late Benedictine sister Suzanne Zucker, who was a, a clinical psychologist by training. So as a woman religious, a clinical psychologist, and somebody who uh, was well-versed and written several books on Thomas Merton knew well uh, what she was talking about and offers a very insightful study and reflection on this relationship and its role in Merton's kind of spiritual and personal human formation. So I, I recommend that to our listeners as well. Gary Wills takes the fact that there was this, as it's sometimes called, an affair. And, and I resist that term for this reason. An affair, it's like, it's like when uh, kids say, by kids, let's say college students say, did you hook up with so-and-so this weekend? Affair and hookup can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different hearers and to a lot of different speakers. What exactly do we mean by an affair? Gary Wills has assumed that this meant an overt sexual... That it was consummated. It, I guess. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he says as much. Does he, he use yeah. that term? I mean, yeah. consummated, I only understand really within the context of marriage. Consummate means to seal the deal. Fair enough. But but, but, but that it had sexual intercourse. That, it had, that there was, right. I mean, his, his he, he on no uncertain terms, Wills makes the case that, or I, I, he makes the allegation. He assumes. He yeah. assumes that there was sexual intercourse. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is, and he, he presents this, going back to some of the issues with his take, he presents this as understood fact. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. That has never been verified. That has never been suggested. Actually, Merton's writings and journal entries seem to suggest the contrary. Wills takes great liberties and license to then imagine a lot of things around this, this particular relationship. That's, that's a real problem. It's, yeah. It is what I call overreach. Um, now, here's the thing. On the one hand, even if that were to happen, even if that was the case, I think it still doesn't impugn Merton because he does ultimately decide and recommit himself or commit himself you know, more strongly to his own religious vocation. He does not leave the monastery. He lives for another two years. 
And, you know, it's like saying that if, and again, again, this is a hypothetical, if Gary Wills' imagination were true, and I contest that it, it is not, um, or at least it's not verifiable, it is precisely his imagination, then, you know, it raises questions about couples who have an infidelity or couples who, fall, you know, a person in, in that relationship falls in love with somebody else, and maybe there's an exploration, but in the end, they decide to stay with the person, it's, it's all forthright, and they recommit themselves and are together for the rest of their life. Is that not a valid relationship? Is that, is that a, not a valid living of that couple's vows? So I, I just take it, I just take such issue with Gary Wills's flipness and lack of understanding of religious life, lack of understanding of relationship, and the presumptions that he brings to assumptions he makes. And, and as somebody who has spent the better part of the last two decades as a scholar of Merton's work, um, I find it deeply insulting that he would be so um, – who, who should know better? I mean, he's a scholar himself. He's a historian, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. He should know better, and and it's, it's very frustrating. Well, and so here's the pivot point because I want to – pull from this moment with M and get to a bigger piece of what I think rhetorically Wills is doing here. And to and this is really why I want to tie it into the, the Notre Dame conversation as well. So Wills in the process of this review, basically, if I'm following his argument, does this. He says, okay, Merton, when he first came in and he was writing The Seven Story Mountain, he was kind of an ultra-traditionalist in some ways and was allied with some very traditionalist views but that was more an affectation, and he didn't really understand the faith. And then Merton moved away from that, and when he goes to the Hermitage, he goes to the Hermitage, and this is Wills's characterization, he goes to the Hermitage not for greater spiritual clarity, but basically because he doesn't like his brother monks, and he's trying to get away and, and, and trying to be. And so Merton is a rock star, and he's, he's enjoying being a rock star. He doesn't want to be the abbot. This is what what Will says, and Will says he's, he doesn't want to be the abbot because basically Merton wants to do things Merton's way, and it's always the Merton show is kind of the way that Wills is characterizing it. All right, so... Well, can I address that first? Well, yes, and go ahead and address that, but then I have a question I yeah. want to ask about that. Yeah, well, what I want to address is here again is a series of presumptions he makes that are not substantiated by any texts. So this is all Wills's prose and conjecture. It's, it's his own fabrication and imagination. It's, it's doxography, to be technical. He is writing his opinion as if it were fact. And the truth is, he's wrong about all these things. Yes, Merton was in many ways, you know, he was clearly sui generis. You know, he, he was unique. He was, as I wrote in an, in an article in National Catholic Reporter in December of last year on the 50th anniversary of Merton's death, he was unabashedly human. And I think that upsets some people and perhaps it's threatening to Wills. I think Wills, you know, if I may conjecture a little bit, is a little jealous of, you know, the fact that he's written all these books about Augustine and St. Paul and the Gospels and Catholicism. And it doesn't have quite the same sort of reach and appreciation that Merton always will and has. But the thing is that Merton was somebody who struggled with his own ego, but he was somebody who was also deeply humble. He was somebody who you know, had this experience of love that that challenged and rocked his own sort of security in religious life. And then he was also committed to his own religious life. He was somebody who sought greater and greater solitude genuinely. And as somebody who, again, has spent years and years and years with his writings in his journals, including things that haven't been published like his correspondence, 
He's somebody who genuinely struggles with that and desired. He, he, when he entered the monastery, wanted to, you know, he, he has this interesting turn of phrase where he talks about like Merton the writer is dead. It was actually his abbot and his superiors in the Cistercian community that insisted that he write as a part of his ministry. They forced him into that, in other words. And so, you know, this idea, the speculation or assumption about Merton's motives on Wills's part is, is complete fabrication. And, uh, you know, and I think it's, it's it, it, you use the term character assassination. I think it's deeply disrespectful. I think it's deeply unsubstantiated. Well, and so here's the question, the bigger question, and I'm going to tie it into our earlier discussion. So my criticism of Notre Dame as Catholic Disneyland presupposes that the effectiveness of that building as a beacon to the world was dependent in many ways on the spiritual authenticity of what was happening on the inside. And then I, I, I said, as a layperson, when Father Fournier runs in and, and, and gets the sacrament and the crown of thorns, the supposed crown of thorns, that was meaningful to me as a layperson. And you said, well, there's not really a, a, a theological freight there. And, there. and so, so here, Wills is doing something similar. He's basically saying, okay, everybody's attracted to Merton, and because of that, they might get attracted to Catholicism. But Wills seems to be saying that it's the wrong Catholicism. They're getting attracted to the kind of charismatic, kind of rock star Catholicism, and not what I guess Wills thinks is the real faith. And this seems to be what's ringing through, like, in both his critique of Merton as being too traditional in the Seven Story Mountain and then not traditional enough in his later life, Wills seems to say that Merton keeps missing the mark but that presupposes that Wills knows what the mark is. And this is my kind of, so this is the bigger picture is like, what, what is this critique that we're, that you and I are caught up in as well? This notion that there's a real Catholicism out there. And somehow if you're too attractive, you're not getting the real Catholicism. Like, That's funny. You should say that yeah. too. Well, and Fournier now is, is kind of fallen into this too. He's become a quote unquote celebrity. Yeah. I mean, you hear this with, with James Martin, you hear this with others, you know, these, these folks on Twitter, I get it too. Yeah. They, they call us in a dismissing way, quote, celebrity priest or something. Well, it's like, no one asked for this, yeah. you know, ostensibly Fournier did not ask for this attention either. Right. And I don't know, I, I think I'm just gonna have to leave your connection to the Notre Dame cathedral aside because I don't really follow the connection here. Okay. But I think you're raising an interesting point about wills. Let me, let me say it more plainly. So there's a sense that I think it's a good thing when people who are not otherwise attracted to the Catholic faith find something that fascinates them. And it might be the writings of Thomas Merton. It, it might be a visit to the Notre Dame Cathedral. It might be hearing a news report and they're concerned and they're curious about why a person would run into a burning building to get basically crackers and twigs. And so maybe that's their hook point. Maybe that's the point that begins a fascination with the Catholic faith. Now, that we may dismiss any of those things as not the genuine faith, Nevertheless, it's the point that is oh, attractive I think, to them. I see. I think I see. I think I follow now. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I'm not. I I resist any kind of comparison with Wills because my discomfort with the Fournier thing, mm -hmm. the, the the fire chaplain, is not based on theology. And I'm saying this is bad faith. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was stupid. Mm -hmm. And and. I was not moved by it. Oh, I was moved by it, but not in the same direction that you were. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I, I hear you and, and I agree that, you know, whatever moves the heart and spirit of people to the faith or to whatever, that's fine. It's also, it's also going to be relative. Yeah. 
and I don't mean relativism, lest our listeners get concerned, but I mean relative person to person. But Wills is trying to spook people away from reading Merton. Of, exactly. Yeah. And so this is so here's the problem is, you know, my critique of the of the Notre Dame chaplain thing, the fire chaplain thing is on, on the surface level, I, I'm happy to leave it out there. You know, I didn't write, I'm not writing a column about this. I'm not making, you brought it up. We're talking about it on air here. But like, I'm not going around, you know, screaming and yelling and writing, the, you know, 8,000 word article in Harper's talking about that. What Wills is ostensibly doing is trying to quote unquote, go deeper and unmask all this sort of stuff. And I have a real problem with that because there's nothing but doxography to be found in there. So the irony, interestingly enough, with his accusation of shallowness is that his own understanding of Merton's writings, which are, you know, incredibly broad and incredibly deep, is very shallow. The writings are broad and deep. His under- his understanding is shallow. That's exactly right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, it's – so I – I don't know. I guess I'm, if I understand, I, I've kind of lost the original question, but I, I think if I understand some of the issues you're bringing up, I, I'm on the same page. Whatever inspires people, the problem is, and, and I don't have a problem with that, and I don't have a problem with the fact that Gary Wills doesn't like Merton. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people for a lot of different reasons that don't like Merton. Perfectly fine. But to make it, he moves from the subjective to a pr- presentation masquerading as objective Mm -hmm. and he's trying to make a universal claim about Merton's quote-unquote shallowness or something like this, I think you diagnosed it exactly right, that whatever it is about what Merton represents for Wills is the thing that is is the thorn in his side and he's presuming and predicating that of everybody else, which I think is so stupid. It's it's, it's poor, it's, it's beneath him, which is why I said in that tweet, that he knows better. He's a better scholar and historian than this. So, I mean, I, I, that's where I stand on this. I, I don't, if you don't like Thomas Merton, that's fine. Guess what? I don't like reading a lot of the Carmelite mystics. You know what? I don't go around writing long pieces about that, calling them shallow, you know, John of the Cross. <laughs> you know? But, but the, I mean, that's the thing. And, and the sad truth is, and I, I apologize in advance if this comes across as ad hominem, but I think there might be something here at play. The irony of Wills going after things like what he projects into Merton being his ego and being this, that, and the other thing. Wills is a very elderly man who has had a, a very successful career as, a, as an academic and as a writer, but not as successful as Merton. And my suspicion is that a hundred years from now, people will still be reading Merton like John of the Cross and no one will know who Gary Wills is. Mm. And as this man is nearing the end of his life in his 80s, I bet it bothers him. And the truth is, I have no ill will toward Gary Wills, just like I have no ill will toward John of the Cross, who I'm just picking up as an example. You know, I actually don't, I'm indifferent to John of the Cross. But, but the point is, if people don't like Merton a hundred years from now, then they don't have to read him. But my guess is a lot of people will, and it's not because he's shallow. It's because he speaks to their heart. And I think you've, you've diagnosed some interesting, some interesting lines in this that I hadn't picked up. I don't know Wills' work as well, nor do I know Merton's work as well. But the thing that I do know about Merton, and to some extent about Wills, is that both of them have been attractants to people who are questioning and are on a spiritual path that will— oftentimes lead them to the Catholic Church. I think that anyone who is on a genuine spiritual journey, who is open, 
will find any number of meanings as they need it. Ludwig Wittgenstein talked about it like the ladder. You use the ladder to climb up to the next point, and then you don't really need the ladder anymore. And so if Wills is a place that gets them there, if Fournier is a place that gets them there, if Merton is a place that gets them there, I'm thankful if they get there. And so I think I'm not in any way disagreeing with anything that you've said. I'm actually, I just really wanted to talk to you about both these things because I knew that your take was going to give me things to think about that I hadn't thought about before. And I really appreciate you taking the time to kick it around with me. Well, I appreciate it too, but I still resist. And I don't know that you intend this, but there's a false equivalency here. Okay. Merton and Wills are not the same. I hear you. And, And I think that's really important. Another example that just came to mind, I didn't mention it earlier, is that Wills... I don't know if it's his most recent book, but one of his most recent books was a book with the title Why Priests? And it is a very, very bad example of how somebody in one field should not be dabbling in another. Because he he basically says that we don't need that, – that holy orders isn't real, that there's no historical grounding for this, that we don't need to have a clerical class in, in the church. And so he doesn't – rely on any of the best historical scholarship, any of the best sacramental theology, any of the best theology of orders, any ecclesiology. And yet this is published by a big publishing house, right? And and it stirred a lot of attention. So I I bring that up because, you know, he he has demonstrated a desire to overreach into areas that are outside of his expertise and to uh, opine about things. So if that's attractive to people, that's fine. But I think, you know, again, they're, they're not the same because people can, can like or dislike Gary Wills or Thomas Merton. But once you go beneath the surface and you start looking at what they're saying, Merton knew what he was talking about. And there's substance there in a way that I don't see analogous in, in Wills's work. That may be a good place to leave it. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dalt, and you know the drill. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Speaking of current events, we got an interesting Holy Thursday gift or curse or 400-something pages of reading material from the Justice Department, and this is the redacted Mueller report. We'll just call Mueller. We know that the German pronunciation is different, but we'll, that's how he goes. So Robert Mueller's, uh, the special uh, prosecutor's report on the Russian interference in the U.S. election in 2016. David, what do you think about this? Well, you, you say it's, I mean, it, it runs at about 498 pages, but it's a misnomer to call it a 498-page a report because fully a third of it is blacked out. And so one of the things that was striking to me is, well, two things. One is Gnosticism, and the other is biblical interpretation. So Gnosticism. The Gnostics are the great boogie persons of the Christian faith throughout history, those that want to take the faith and make it into a mystery cult, basically, to make it into, there are those who can who can bear the weight of hidden knowledge and those, the rest, uh, the unwashed hoi polloi, who are not 
worthy of bearing the weight of hidden knowledge, and therefore they will get a false faith, but that's fine because it's those that get the real faith that will become, you know, those will, will get entry into heaven and afterlife and whatever. Christianity has resisted this again and again. Christianity has at its best said that secrets and mysteries there are divine mysteries, but it's not hiddenness that that makes Christianity operative and right. It's in. It's also not gnosis. It's yeah. not knowledge either. Yeah, and 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 so what we have here in in this promulgation of this redacted report is insiders and outsiders. We have those that understand what the black spaces speak of, and those that do not. And I'm I'm fundamentally anti-Gnostic in my in my way of thinking about things, and so I'm resistant to the notion that the the people the people who pay the taxes and who pay the salaries of those that prepared this report somehow are not worthy of knowing what the report says. What do you say to people, though, who say the things, you know, because if we, if you look at those redactions, there were justifications, you know, that, that were presented. For instance, you know, uh, this reveals this had to be blocked out because it reveals how we spy on other countries or this has to be blocked out because it's an ongoing investigation you don't buy that well so i'll i'll simply uh paraphrase daniel ellsberg and also glenn greenwald who has some difficulties around him right now but but has has done a thorough review of those times that national security has been invoked and he says the data doesn't bear that out, that when you see things that are hidden because of, quote unquote, national security, and we can see this around the nuclear weapons plants as well in the 1980s and 90s, both during their operation and during their cleanup, national security was invoked oftentimes to protect those that would be damaged or would be held accountable for hurting the public. But most often, national security was not actually at threat in those points. So, no, I don't buy it. Well, and it's interesting. I, I just heard an, uh, a conversation over the weekend with a journalist who mentioned that there are quite a few journalists who, through the Freedom of Information Act, have sued the government for an unredacted version. They don't expect to get it, obviously, but what that does allow for are the attorneys to litigate each single redaction, each mark, and that the uh, Justice Department will have to give an account a fuller account of why this particular line or this particular word is being cut out. And what's interesting is that there are those journalists that have also gone through and have begun kind of sifting through. Sometimes something will be redacted, but the footnote won't be redacted, or sometimes a footnote will be redacted. And so they've begun piecing together what is actually in those blacked out points. And so I think that that some of this is going to become more exposed in the weeks in the weeks and months to come. But the other piece of this that I think is interesting for us particularly is how close this is to proof texting. Because the document that we have now allows for the possibility of multiple narratives. It allows now to justify, somebody did an example on social media where they took the first few lines of A Tale of Two Cities and they blacked out uh, strategic parts of A Tale of Two Cities. And you can make a document read completely differently depending on what you what you make opaque. And that's important here that we, we as voters, we as taxpayers, we need more information, not less. And we need to be able to have robust arguments based in material and data, not in sort of supposition. And what we're getting right now is we're not getting the full story. And, you know, having, I think that there, that more speech blocks out bad speech. And I think that allowing for more data and more information would be good for us just as people trying to make rational decisions as adults about our country and our lives. You know, that's that's the vital thing that's being withheld from us. 
And I, I have a real problem with that. You know, it's interesting too. I, I, this proof texting analogy really does seem to fit for me. You know, I've heard it said that, you know, the, the document, of course, is in two parts. The first deals with conspiracy in collaboration with the Russian government. And the second one has to do with obstruction of justice. And I heard somebody say that the first part really is, is the Republican focus. The second part is the Democratic focus. And, and that's probably true. It does raise some interesting questions, you know. So if I, if I can expand on that. So if we, if we think about a person who stands in the, the public square and pronounces that the Bible clearly says this and this. So the Bible clearly says that you shouldn't, a man should not lie with a man like a man lies with a woman and reads that part of Leviticus 19 and doesn't, or maybe they even have Leviticus 19 and 18 tattooed on their left arm, completely missing the fact that Leviticus 19 and 18 also preach against tattoos or the mixing of polycotton blends or the mixing together of various grains. And so proof texting is not just, it's, it's selectively reading in order to get the end result that you've already defined. Yeah. Well, I guess the interesting point to me is that, you know, their proof texting and eisegesis are sometimes really closely related. And I'm, I'm curious at times about what is actually happening here. And, and actually, your earlier point about the redactions lends itself better to eisegesis, that since there isn't a, a whole kind of clear presentation of, of all the facts, we can project into it what, what we want to see there. Whereas proof texting is, take, you know, is, is, is selective reading, I suppose, right, or taking things out of context. Now, maybe this betrays my own sort of, you know, hermeneutical political bias here, but I, I feel like there's more eisegesis and proof texting going on in the GOP side of things, particularly when you see people wanting to support the president's claim that he's fully exonerated when the document itself, you know, cl- clearly states that there is no exoneration at all. The first part seems somewhat straightforward that there's not enough evidence to suggest that the Trump administration or the Trump campaign actively conspired with the Russian government. But we should say that part of the reason why there's not that evidence, and Mueller says this, is because he was limited in his scope about what he could go after. He was like he was completely barred from looking at certain types of evidence. So it's not that the evidence he he's laying it out to say the evidence might be there and the FBI could investigate it, but he he doesn't say that the evidence doesn't exist. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That yeah, so based on what they examined, they couldn't conclude that. The second point too actually is is it's far more damning when it comes to when it comes to obstruction of justice, which is not that Trump and his team did not obstruct justice. It's 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 actually the biggest caveat here is that following the Justice Department's memorandum about indicting a sitting president, the Mueller team said we cannot indict a president and therefore at this point here's all of the evidence basically of obstruction or attempted obstruction. I think I think the the craziest thing is it's very clear that the president was attempting to obstruct justice at various points and that the kind of weird heroes of the story out of nowhere are his lackeys who refused for their own self-interest to not pursue those directives. The I, the thing that's confusing to me is how people look at that and say, some people do anyways, that 
oh, well, you know, they didn't actually do anything. I'm like, well, no, but the order was still given by the president of the United States. It would be like if Nixon was saying, go break into the Watergate. Which is exactly and then how they, they didn't. That's exactly how they got Nixon on, on the tapes is, yeah. is they had Nixon saying, well, I can raise a million dollars to quash that story. I mean, that was the moment when they knew, when they knew that they had him. Yeah. And what, what fascinates me is what's different between then and now? Twitter. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's been the slow Chinese torture leak of very little... There's very little explosive information that came out in this document. We've known about it thanks to great reporting, thanks to all of the referrals. I mean, let's not forget there's more than 30 people who have been indicted and many of whom who are in jail, including the highest advisors, campaign advisors, personal lawyer of the president of the United States. Now, the thing that's hard to realize is 30, 40 years ago, in the, you know, when we're talking about like the Nixon era – we didn't have this regular stream of information, even with the good work, work of the Washington Post. I mean, it really trickled out. And then there was this kind of tsunami of information. With, with us now, we already know all of this, but because it's been spread out over two years, we've become kind of desensitized to it. I think that plays a big role in all this. And so let me ask the question that I think a lot of people are wrestling with, given that even the limited amount of information that we've been given with the redactions, you say points in a direction of malfeasance. Should a, a route of impeachment be pursued or would you caution against that? I don't know. I don't know. It's a good thing I'm not a political strategist or a representative who has to make this call. I think the arguments on all sides make sense. I, I think the lesson learned in the Clinton era politically is that it will backfire more than it than it will advance the cause. Yes, technically Bill Clinton perjured himself, right? And that could be viewed as an attempt to cover up an investigation. Again, it's a similar sort of thing. It's this like tangent sort of thing. It, the investigation was about a, a real estate deal, Whitewater, and had nothing to do with his, you know, personal life and, and affairs. And then this whole thing kind of spiraled. In the case of Trump, I, I think it's a, it's kind of a similar thing that we already know it's not going to – It's the, the way – just to remind our listeners that impeachment works in terms of the removal from office is that a trial takes place in the House, which would proceed under the supervision of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And there are enough votes very clearly that, that Trump would be impeached and then that indictment, as it were, gets sent to – the Senate and the Senate acts as the the ultimate judge and determines by a, a really high margin whether or not the the public official in this case the president would be removed from office and it's it's a Republican run Senate I mean it's just not going to happen the tipping point in Nixon's case what there are two important things that happened with Nixon that that are not in play right now which leads me to think that it's best at this late stage of the game to to leave impeachment aside because it's not an effective tool given the circumstances one is that Nixon for all of his criminality had a certain sense of moral his morals and 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 prudence where Trump does not i mean the man has no moral code at all you know, the interesting thing about somebody like Nixon is that he violated his own moral code. Trump has nothing to violate. Everything is relative for him. The second thing is that it was leaders in the Republican Party that went to Nixon and said, you have got to resign or, or you are going to lose this. 
And what's been demonstrated, you know, I heard a, a political commentator making this remark about the loss of Senator John McCain. There are very few John McCains left who would have the, the, the courage and the fortitude and the integrity to go to a, a president of his own party and say that kind of thing. You need to resign for the sake of the country. You know, your own party does not support you anymore. Where basically the Republican Party under Mitch McConnell in the Senate is a series of sycophants who seek power at its own sake. They're basically Hobbesian politicians. And I just don't see those two things coming together, which are necessary. So when when the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, says that the Democrats are not going to pursue, you know, articles of impeachment, I think that makes sense. I think the other thing, you know, in light of what I just said, I think the other thing that's worth noting is that we have a presidential election that's that's already underway in the primary sense, and this is going to happen next year. That's the time to get this president out of office. You know, even if you like his party, you're a member of his party, and these sorts of things. Even if you like certain things about him, I think one has to ask themselves about this question of a moral code. Where, if you know, to put it rather strikingly, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate mail about this. But if, if the choice on the ballot is between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump, I'd vote for Nixon 100 times because though he was a criminal and, I, and there's qu- plenty of evidence to suggest and the, there are open cases like in the Southern District of New York against Trump and his, his company and his family, then he's a criminal. But as a sitting president, the policy of the Justice Department is you don't indict a sitting president. So when he comes out of office, chances are he will be arrested. He will have to face trials uh, and charges. And so I think if we want to see that happen and, and the full truth come out about, you know, what these investigations have unearthed, that's the way it happens. He has to be voted out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> does that answer your question? I don't yeah, know. That, that absolutely does. That I absolutely kind of like does. had a stroke there for a minute. No. I forgot I was talking and then we got really quiet. I'm like, am I still talking? <laughs> but so I, I will say just quickly that I, I think I disagree. And uh, you want to do impeachment Why? for the reasons that I said earlier, because I think that impeachment allows for an investigative process using the powers of the Congress that that will allow for the American people to be exposed to information that otherwise we can't get. And so I find that very appealing. I, I don't think about it pragmatically in terms of how it will affect the election. I think about it in terms of how it will affect the American people being able to make decisions. I, I know, but I think there's enough evidence already out there. I mean, that's that's we go back to this conversation about the the Twitter world we're in. It's all there. I mean, enough is there, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I my question is, what would the investigatory process of of the House Judicial, you know, committee or the Justice Committee or whatever, what could they possibly present that would convince somebody who is is gonna vote for Trump? Yeah, and and hear this, and they're gonna go, oh, you know what? That's that's the the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't think there's a single thing they'd find. I guess I'm I'm also a person that likes Robert's rules of order and I like things to be done decently and in order and so because I think that it's the Congress's job to do this, I also feel strongly that that the Congress should do this because otherwise it's just another nail in the coffin of Congress. I yeah, I but I think that's been dead for a long time. Yeah. I think I think from 1994 on yeah. Congress, I mean with Newt Gingrich inventing basically the culture wars and this whole sort of the lack of bipartisan support, I mean, it's been dead for a long time. The other point, too, is it's important to realize, and I know you know this and our listeners probably do, too, that impeachment is a political, not a legal process. 
And so, you know, analogous to that actually is the voice of the voters. And so that is also a political process. Justice will, I, I have faith that justice will be served, but it's not going to happen until Donald J. Trump is out of office. And I don't think, and I think this is where Speaker Pelosi is correct, it, he's not going to be removed from office by means of impeachment in the next year and a half. And my sense is, you know, I just think the people who make the case that it's going to cause more damage because of the world of spin that we live in, it's not going to convince anybody who's going to vote for him to not vote for him. And so the real issue is, is it going to, what is it going to do? And my sense is not much at best, at worst, numb people further into disaffection such that when November 2020 rolls around, we have the same sort of thing, low turnout, this kind of thing. And by attrition, we get it, we get another four years of this. Well, and so when we're back in the fall, we'll pick this up. We will. If I can end, though, and yeah. encourage some of our listeners, this really cracked me up, just because this has been a very political segment, to bring it into some, some theology humor here, some scriptural humor, as it were. There is a, uh, a cartoonist who's oftentimes featured in The New Yorker named Ellis Rosen. And on April 19th, he posted on his website a cartoon called Pharaoh's Frogs, spelled P-H-R-O-G-S. And it's this great cartoon. I encourage you to Google it because this is a podcast and I can't show it to you. But there's a picture of a man and a woman in Egyptian gear walking down this hallway with these columns. And in the background, through the columns, you can see outside the, the pyramid and there are frogs on the floor. There are frogs flying from the, from the sky. There are frogs everywhere. And the one guy in his Egyptian kind of headdress and like loincloth has his hand up and he says, although this does not conclude that the pharaoh committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you that want the reference, uh, that's Exodus. <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much for listening uh, through this season. We're, we're looking forward to being back in the fall. We we're going to do our best to uh, to say hello a couple times during the summer as well. But uh, for right now, please know that you will remain in our prayers and in our eternal thanks for your attention and your listening. Thanks for being here. We really we appreciate your support. We appreciate your listening. Thank you for uh, for keeping us going. We're now finishing up season four. We're excited about season five in the fall. As always, we don't say this very often, but please do, if you uh, care to, review us on, on Apple and iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. And, and if uh, you like listening to us, tell your friends, share the word, spread the good news, <laughs> and, uh, and also the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, thanks again. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studio here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. 
We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisFXPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening.